0: 22 and 23. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to be using your pew Bibles, you can find that on page 322 in the pew Bibles in front of you. Hear the word of God. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of shale entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. and From his temple he heard my voice and my cries came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down, thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like a morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Jeremy, uh, boys and girls uh, who are registered for Story Keepers uh, can head out. Also, any kids who are going to nursery—they're not already out there—they're welcome to go. As the kids head out, let me let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Your Word. Thank you for how You've uh, been walking with us through this series in Second Samuel for its insights, for its guidance, for It's revelation of you, the great God. We pray that as we look at this uh, song of David, these last words of David, that again, you would not only instruct us, but you would overwhelm us by your greatness and your goodness, uh, your love, your grace, your justice, your majesty, that uh, no matter where each of us is in our journey of faith, that uh, this would be a significant time where you speak to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It it is, of course, a reality that every person who has died up to this point in history has at some point uttered his or her last words. Some of those last words are more famous than others. During a night of sleeplessness, Elvis Presley told his then fiance, Ginger Alden, I'm going to the bathroom to read, ended up dying there. Johnny Ace, an R&B singer, died in 1954 while playing with a pistol. During a break in his concert set, his last words were where I'll show you that it won't shoot. Perhaps my favorite is that of the Irish writer Oscar Wilde whose last words are reported to have been, this wallpaper is appalling, one of us will have to go. We're looking at a section here at the end of Second Samuel, which includes the last words of David, King David, at the beginning of chapter 23, and that's preceded, as we just heard, by what appear to be some of the earlier words of David in chapter 22. But before we look at them in detail, let me just say about the four last chapters in toto of Second Samuel, because they have a particular structure worth noting. Fancy name for this structure is a chiasm, but I want you to think of it as a sandwich. Think of a sandwich with your favorite filling in it, roast beef, chicken salad, my favorite lobster, whatever it is, and imagine I'm describing the sandwich to you Uh, from the bottom so on the bottom we've got the bread or the toasted bun whatever it is and then maybe some mayonnaise or some other condiment and then above that the the delicious meat that's there and then above the delicious meat there's maybe lettuce or some tomato and then to top it all off right on the tops another piece of bread and you say well that doesn't really seem to you know the crescendo wasn't really in the right place and that's because the highlight of the sandwich, of course, is what's in the, in the middle, in the center, the, the beef or the chicken or the lobster. And that's how these last four chapters of 2 Samuel work. That, as I mentioned last week, uh, chapter 20 marked the end of the chronological account that covered the lives of Samuel and Saul and David, began all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Remember, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel originally were just one book, not two. So that these last four chapters really, in a sense, are bonus material. They're a collection of of fragments, but actually a very carefully crafted collection of fragments. And they're organized like a sandwich. So if you look on the screen here, on the, the kind of the bread pieces on either end, you've got deliverance from famine at the beginning, deliverance from a pestilence. And then you've got maybe the lettuce or whatever you want to think of it, the mighty men of David, in b and then in b1 the mighty men of david and then in the middle the section that we're looking at today and all of which is to say the narrator has carefully structured the material so that the highlight the central feature the lobster meat of this section is this song and these last words of david and i debated whether to start on the outside of this sandwich and work in over the next couple of weeks or start on the inside and work out, and the second option prevailed probably because the last 10 chapters have been so depressing with David's sin and its consequences that I thought we could probably do with something more uplifting today. So here we are, and the passage is obviously a long one. I didn't ask Jeremy to read the entire uh, chapter 22, so we'll not be covering everything, but here are the four things that we will focus on. I don't always alliterate my points, but for no extra charge today, there are four R's. The rock, the rescue, the righteous, and the ruler. That's what we're going to look at today. So first, the rock, verses 1 to 4 again. David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. I've had a few conversations with a number of you over the last few weeks and the gist of those conversations have pretty much gone you, where you've said to me, you know, I, I didn't realize how much of a disappointment King David became in the latter part of his life. Now, how does what we have read over the last few weeks, the adultery, the murder, the failures as a father, how does that fit with the description of David back in 1 Samuel 13 and in the New Testament, Acts 13, as a man after God's own heart? And it's certainly true that things fell apart in David's life, but according to most chronologies of his life, the major decline was definitely in the the very final years. And I think, therefore, the reason the narrator uh, puts this psalm here in 2 Samuel 22 is because despite all of David's faults and failures, this psalm reminds us that the single most characteristic thing about David in his life was God. David believed in God. He thought about God. He imagined about God. He prayed to God. The biggest part of David's life wasn't actually David. It was God. And if you want evidence of that, it's right here in this psalm. Much of this psalm is David describing God in the third person. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer and so on. And then all of a sudden, unannounced, David can't help himself but turn to praise God directly, so that testimony turns to prayer. So at the end of verse 3, for example, he's been talking about God, and then he says, you saved me from violence. Five times in the psalm, David switches from telling us something about God to praising God directly, and that's a sign of a God-saturated life. When Tara and I were in seminary, one of our favorite missions professors was a man called Christy Wilson. He was probably everyone's favorite missions uh, professor at that time. He had been a missionary uh, to Afghanistan for 22 years before he had been forced out by the Afghan government. But the stories are legion of of Wilson being in conversation with someone on the seminary campus or on a car journey where they'd be talking about God and, and faith. And Wilson would all of a sudden say, you're absolutely amazing. And the person he was talking to would be about to thank Wilson for such a kind compliment And then he'd realized that Wilson was talking to God. He'd started praying. The testimony turned to prayer just as David does here. That the biggest part of David's life wasn't actually David, it was God. And there's other evidence here too. You don't come up with all these metaphors for God without a, a laser beam devotion and a saturated awareness of God. In just two verses, verses 3 and 4, David names God as his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his refuge, his shield, the horn of his salvation, his stronghold, his savior. David heaps up all these names, as it were, for God, one on top of each other, because he's trying to say, God has been all these things to me. He's been my rock and my fortress and my deliverer and my refuge and, and. And with every and, it's as if David wants to remind us that God always proves to be more than we thought he would be. There's always another and. And that can be added to the catalog of God's goodness and faithfulness because he's always more than you first think he is or imagine that he is. So David names God by metaphors, even rocks, the beginning and the middle and the end is the affirmation, the Lord is my rock. It's the refrain of the song because it's the refrain of David's life. Many of us are familiar enough with the metaphor of rock in the Bible that when we come across it, it doesn't particularly strike us. But just think about this for a moment. In a certain sense, a rock is the furthest thing possible from God. Eugene Peterson asks in his commentary, is there anything lower on the scale of creation than a rock. And yet as David pondered and meditated on God, the extreme unlikeness of a rock provoked in him an awareness of of likeness, that God is like a rock in his strength and in his protection and in his dependability. So David obviously was aware of what was around him on an everyday basis, and the more he noticed what was around him, the more he noticed God. Now you don't have to be King David to do what David does here. Our growth group just completed reading David Taylor's wonderful book on the Psalms called Open and Unafraid. And in the final chapter of that book on creation, Taylor mentions a game that he and his wife uh, would play together called the divine game of pinzatsky It's a game named after the couple who came up with the game, Arthur and Ellen pinzatsky Uh, who who, who, uh, formed the game. And the game calls for, for one person to point out a natural object, and then the other person has to, as best they can, state what that object might say about God and why. So Taylor wrote, for example, that he would point to some green moss, and his wife would reply the gentleness of God and explain why she thought so or she would point to a deep crevasse in a, in a mountain and Taylor would say something like God's severe mercy. You don't have to be with someone to play this game. When I, I've been on my own, it's really just been a matter of being more observant of my surroundings, of what John Calvin calls the theater of God's glory. And then as David did, the more I notice about how, what God has created, the more I notice God and how it reflects on his character. And you see, this is not an abstract exercise. It wasn't for David. Notice that in verse 1, the narrator told us that David spoke these words when, when the Lord delivered him from the hands of all his enemies, and specifically from the hand of Saul. It's been a few years since we looked at 1 Samuel, but you may recall that basically for half of the book of 1 Samuel, from chapters 18 to 31, David's on the run from Saul, David was hated and hunted and haunted by Saul, pushed from pillar to post, driven to desperation at times. But what's interesting in this psalm is that after verse 1, Saul doesn't get mentioned again. The enemy, none of the enemies are specifically identified. They're all left generic and anonymous, as in verse 4, I am saved from my enemies. And I think that's intentional so that you and I can appropriate this psalm for ourselves. That your enemies in mind probably probably aren't named Saul. It's not a particularly common name these days, unless you're Jimmy McGill, aka Saul Goodman, in the TV show Better Call Saul. But your your enemy may be more your superior, immediate superior at work, who's just unrelenting and mean spirited to you. Or your enemy might be a serious illness that's in your family or someone close to you. Or for many of us, our enemies are actually internal the enemy of our ongoing impatience or a bitterness we feel towards another person or a tendency to explosive anger. And so that every time we come across reference to enemies in this psalm or any psalm, we we substitute the particulars of our enemy in there. And when we do that, David's helping us remember the resource we have to battle our enemies, that God's my rock, my fortress, my, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my savior. That God's my rock. So then secondly, the rescue. So we've just seen David draws on his own experience of God, his meditations on God as he provides us with all these metaphors, but his experience is not his only source for these metaphors. David also had the scriptures to draw on, and in particular what we might call the original rock song, Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32. We're not going to take the time to look at it here, but if you read it sometime, you'll notice that rock is basically like a nickname for God in that song. One of God's requirements that he laid down for Israel's king was that he would read the scriptures daily, the first Daily devotional command in the Bible. And you can bet that David was familiar, therefore, with Moses' song and drew inspiration from it for his song. But David's inspiration from Moses in this song doesn't stop at the rock. In verses five to seven, David speaks of his desperation faced with the threat of imminent death and how in his distress he called out to God and how God heard his cry. And then David writes this, verses 8 to 10. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. Jump down to verse 17. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me for they were too mighty for me they confronted me in the day of my calamity but the lord was my support he brought me out into a broad place he rescued me because he delighted in me so imagine for a moment david had an editor to whom he has to send all his psalms and the editor sends this one back and says you know i'd I'd really like you to shorten this one a little bit tighten it up a bit how about if we cut out verses 8 to 20 and you just say, God intervened on my behalf and saved me. That says the same thing. I think David would have rightfully rejected the suggestion, not only because it would have ruined the poetry, but because he's not interested here in just reporting something that's factually true. He wants to impress us with God. He doesn't want to just increase your knowledge bank about what God has done. He wants you to see the God who did this. David wants to show us a God that we won't forget. And with the the images he uses here, we certainly won't forget. But what's interesting about David's account here of God's rescue of him in verses 8 to 20 is that he's he's clearly using Exodus language to describe it. And so you think, what's David doing using Exodus language? I think he's doing two things. First of all, he's describing the actual Exodus in these verses he's describing something that literally happened in history the exodus from Egypt this parting of the Red Sea the encounter between God and his people at Mount Sinai but that historical event wasn't something that happened to David himself not in the sense that he was there at the time David was born several hundred years later And yet in a very real sense, David is saying, it did happen to me because it happened for me as it happened for countless others. That the freedom that David enjoyed, his relationship with God, that was all founded on on the exodus, that, that this was the moment that God rescued Israel, made them his people, that in that moment at the Red Sea, David was drawn out of the waters, as he says in verse 17 here, because Israel was drawn out of the waters. He now lived in the promised land because of that moment. So that every rescue that David experienced, and and there were many, was based on that first great rescue. David is saying here whenever I felt overwhelmed by life, entangled by death, I could look back to the Exodus and I would be able to face my fears with the fact of the Exodus and its promise that God had created us, his people and will not abandon his promises to them." But in addition to looking back to the Exodus and drawing strength from it, David also understood that his experiences were an echo of the Exodus too. His story was a continuation of the Exodus. That David wants to enter into the old, old story, not just for information, but in order to become a participant, to make himself home in this story. And so being part of that continuing story meant that David realized that he didn't, for example, just get lucky with the slingshot when he faced Goliath. That as God had done in the Exodus, so he did with David. God had intervened on his behalf. And he didn't just get lucky when he escaped from Saul. God had intervened on his behalf. Just as he intervenes in your life and in my life. When God intervenes on your behalf in your life, to the untrained eye, it might look like you got lucky, or a Christian friend just happened to turn up at the very right moment, or there was a, this timely coincidence. But David here is encouraging us to see, I think, all such interventions as acts of the earth-shaking, fire-breathing, darkness-dispelling God. That's a much better way to read history and to understand your life. So Tim Chester, in his commentary, gives some examples. He says, next time you want to say, you know, I was struck by something I read in my Bible today, why don't you say, Jesus spoke to me through his word this morning? Or instead of saying, you know, a weird thing happened to me today, say, the Father reached down into my life to provide this wonderful opportunity for me that I didn't see coming. Or instead of saying, I don't know how I got through it, say, the Spirit helped me through his grace and his power. Because the God of rescue is the God who constantly intervenes for our good. So the rock, the rescue, thirdly the righteous, verses 21 to 25. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Now, if you're puzzled by these verses, (laughs) you would not be the first. Many people over the years have asked, how on earth could David, who had Uriah's blood on his hands and Uriah's wife in his bed, ever have had the nerve to say anything like this, And the puzzle only deepens when we realize that David here is not talking about imputed righteousness that we read about in Paul in the New Testament, that perfect righteousness of Christ that is credited to our account with God so that we're declared right with God no matter how we've lived. No, David actually here is talking about the righteousness of his life and his actions and his ways. So what are we to make of this? Well, we're helped by understanding uh, this, by noticing something about the structure of, the, of these verses. Notice at the beginning and the end of this little section in verses 21 and 25 are basically the same. They're very similar. The Lord dealt with me or rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness or the cleanness of my hands. So as such, the, these verses kind of form a frame here around verses 22 to 24. And those verses inside the frame define what the nature of this righteousness is. And what we find in verses 22 to 24 is not a claim to sinless perfection, which is often what we think is being claimed by such language of righteousness and blamelessness and so forth. No, I mean, David's not delusional here. David knew he was a sinner. He confessed he was a sinner. But here David is speaking in the context of a covenantal relationship already established, completely established by God's grace between God and himself. And he's saying in the context of that covenant, David had maintained an overall faithfulness to God. That is, he hadn't committed apostasy. He hadn't turned his back on God. So when David speaks about righteousness here, his purity, his blamelessness, he's not pointing to some sinless perfection, he's pointing to a life direction, a long obedience in the same direction. Had David sinned in the midst of all that and did he know it? Absolutely. But within the covenant, there were designated pathways for sinners to be reconciled to God. Any Israelite who had sinned was to confess and repent and offer sacrifice, trusting God to keep his promise and and forgive. And in that way, sinners kept the covenant and led blameless and righteous lives, which is why David says in the Psalm that God was delighted to rescue David because of David's faithful and wholehearted loyalty to the God of this covenant. It's a covenantal term. David maintained his righteousness. So the rock, the rescue, the righteous, lastly, the ruler, which brings us to the opening section of 23 and the last words of David. What we read here weren't actually the very, very last words of David, because in 1 Kings chapter 2, we read how David gave a deathbed speech to his son Solomon, urging him to take care of unfinished business. But the verses here represent David's last official and public utterance, a sort of last will and testament, if you will. And in this last will and testament, David lays out his philosophy of kingship, a mission statement of David's monarchy. And it comes in verses 2 to 4. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible because I think it's a slightly better translation here. The spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The Lord of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, the one who rules the people with justice who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. True kingship, David says, involves ruling justly and the fear of the Lord. Ruling justly and in the fear of the Lord. Now, David could have left it like that. But notice this is actually the Lord speaking here, speaking through David. And David, and God here decides to illustrate what he means by sort of playing a reverse version of the divine game of Penzatsky as he gives these glorious images from creation of what a king looks like. So he says, such a king, such a ruler, is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Now just picture that for a moment. I mean, light itself is, is attractive to us. We're, we're drawn to light. But David here draws us not just to light, but to the light of the morning. The light of the afternoon is good, and the more gentle light of a summer's evening is very pleasant, but there's something unique about the light of morning. There's a clarity to it, as it pulls us out of our sleepiness and offers us new hope for a new day. And then David says, the light I'm talking about isn't simply morning light, it's the earliest, freshest morning light, the light at sunrise, and a sunrise on a cloudless day you have that picture in your imagination yet? Maybe a recent morning comes immediately to mind where you said, yeah, that's what that was like. And that's what David says here is what a well-used authority is like. That the thrill and the freshness and the sense of awe that you and I would feel at such an image is what we'll feel when we're ruled with perfect justice and in the fear of the Lord. And then David says, if you like that image, try this one on for size. Such a ruler is like the glisten of rain that brings the grass from the earth. Again, it's another picture of brightness, but this brightness is the glisten that comes from rain, rain that brings the grass from the earth. So that David's camera now has turned from looking into the sky and looks to the ground. We're no longer looking at the splendor of the thing itself, the sun. We're looking at its glow on these little green shoots sprouting up due to the glistening after the rain. David's saying, in other words, a good king produces good in others. He brings great benefit. He's fruitful. So that when a king rules over others justly and in the fear of the Lord... He is splendid in himself, and he's a blessing to those he rules. And when David spoke those words, he knew there were times in his 40-year reign where he'd shown solid glimpses of this sort of rule, but there were other times when such rule was painfully absent. But again, what David says here was never meant to be ultimately about himself. It was about the promise of a future king, and David knew that and had just said it at the end of the psalm. Look at the final line of the psalm in chapter 22. Great salvation the Lord brings to his king and showed steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. One thing I haven't mentioned about this psalm in chapter 22, but which possibly you picked up from our call to worship followed by today's reading, is that 2 Samuel 22 is the same Psalm with some very, very minor changes to Psalm 18. It's the very same Psalm. And in our new book of the month uh, that's on the table at the back today, this daily devotional on the Psalms, Dane Ortland, working from Psalm 19, points out that the very last verse of the Psalm points us forward beyond David to this future eternal offspring. And of course, specifically, to a greater king who will reign and rule forever, namely Jesus. Or to put it slightly differently, David's philosophy of kingship would only truly find its fulfillment in one person, that is Jesus. It's only King Jesus who truly rules people with justice and rules in the fear of of God. That's why no matter what your political persuasion, every human ruler ends up failing us. It's just frankly foolish to put our hopes in any human king or queen, any president or prime minister, because they'll only disappoint us, because there's only one who's like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass, and it's Jesus. And once we make the connection with Jesus in this psalm, that helps us to make deeper connections from the psalm into our own lives. We saw earlier the significance of the exodus for David, how when he felt overwhelmed by life, he would look back to the exodus and how he understood his own experiences to be an echo of the exodus. And for Christians, our exodus is Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus in Luke 11 says that. He was going to his exodus. And so the same thing applies. Even though we weren't there at the time, Jesus Experience becomes our experience. Just as God delivered Jesus from death and rose him, raised him up from, to new life, God likewise has intervened in our lives with resurrection power. So that we can say, in words similar to David's, whenever I feel overwhelmed by life or entangled by death, I can look to the resurrection of Jesus. I can confront my fears and my feelings with the fact of the resurrection. And that's my assurance that God will never abandon his promises, never abandon me. Which is why King Jesus, in his last words, in his last words on this earth after his resurrection, before his ascension, as recorded by Matthew, were, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age and with you always, the King, our King, who's like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for giving us uh, just this insight into David's love for you his devotion to you his how you capture his imagination not only an example but something that we can experience in our own lives as we saturate ourselves in you as we look back to what you have done for us through jesus we thank you lord jesus that you indeed are the one who rules justly who rules in the fear of the lord We look forward to the day when you will come and establish your rule perfectly in the new heaven and the new earth. We pray this in your name. Amen.